You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 31. This is part two of the Ben Iken story. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend that you scroll back to episode 30 and have a listen before you dive into this one. It's not as if this episode won't make any sense without it. It's that Ben's is a fabulous story and you won't want to miss a second. Last episode, you heard Ben talk about the beginning of his career being part of the state of origin phenomena and how significant that experience has been in his life. He talked about what he loved about being part of the Broncos, and of course, he gave us some tremendous insight into his former coach and father-in-law, Wayne Bennett. Well, part two of Ben's story is just as entertaining. You're about to hear him talk about marrying the coach's daughter and the end of his playing career, his transition into the media, and a whole bunch more. I trust you'll enjoy part two of my conversation with Ben Iken. Hey, Ben, you did a lot of brave things in your time as a footballer. You were a 5'8 centre, tackling big, horrible, ugly forwards in the state of origin arena. But I guess that the bravest thing you ever did in football was to marry the coach's daughter. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool, though. It was very easy. Yeah, <laughs> You know, I, I met my now wife, Elizabeth, uh, I think through mutual friends. And a uh, guy I was playing with was married to uh, Beth's best friend and we were just at a barbecue and hit it off immediately uh so it was kind of i didn't find it daunting i just very much enjoyed her company you know so from the moment we sort of started hanging out you just know and i just knew so that overrode my sense of fear so to speak because i still I was still pretty scared of Wayne at that point. I bet you were. So you were still playing when you met Elizabeth? Yeah, my first season at the Broncos. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I hadn't really kind of become all that familiar with Wayne. We got on well, yeah. and there was a, a great mutual respect. It's only grown, funnily enough, since you know I sort of married his daughter. But it was, I, if I'm being honest, there was never a point in my time where I ever questioned whether or not uh, I'd still keep seeing Beth because of the relationship I had with Wayne at work. And no senior player came to you and said, Ben, what are you doing? Be careful. This could be career limiting. <laughs> there might have been a few jokes uh, passed around uh, the dressing sheds by guys like Wendell Saylor and Alfie Langer, uh, just to stir. It was only ever when Wayne was in the room, you know, to try and embarrass me. Or, uh, But it, it, it just, it was water off a duck's back, to be honest with you. And I, I guess I only look back now and can put some context around it. Maybe I should have been more fearful, but in the moment I just wasn't. And is she very much Wayne Bennett's daughter? Uh, yes and no. She's uh, got her own 
way to do things, to approach things. I, I find my, my wife, you know, and I know I'm heavily biased here, but so very calm and composed and has her own natural, intelligent, insightful way of approaching life. For me, she's been wonderful support. We, I think the strength of uh, myself and, and Beth is that we are better together than we are separate. And we both respect that. I, I like I, my, my wife is my best friend. And I've got no hesitation in saying that because it's true. It's not just the, the old cliche. We enjoy each other's company. We like a lot of the same things. We're both homebodies. Uh, our kids, our four kids, you know, prefer to be at home than they do elsewhere. So we're all very similar that way. And the, the best way I can describe our relationship from the moment we came together and continue to sort of build a life with four children now added on is that it's been easy. It's never, ever been difficult. And that's the, the thing I love about uh, the relationship and my wife, yeah. Like so many other people, your career ended because of injury, but it didn't die an abrupt, sudden death. It was a more slow, painful death. <laughs> after your knee injury, you ended up sort of resigning from the elite squad and heading off to the Clydesdales. How did that play out? I just, I did my knee in 2001. I spent uh, the next two seasons having multiple operations to put it back together. I got back on the field in 2003. I couldn't train or play the way that I used to, so I stopped enjoying it. So I decided it's not as fun as it used to be. And I was never nervous about the next phase. You know, I'd, I'd done a bit of study. I'd sort of got partway through a commerce degree, didn't have the time to finish it, nor the, the discipline, to be honest with you. But I'd done some work experience at the Broncos, so I'd been given a taste of life post-football, and it kind of it excited me. So in 2003, right at the back end of the season, the decision was almost made in an instant. It might have been I'd started speaking about it on a Monday and probably told Wayne by the Wednesday. And that was it. No fanfare. What am I going to do next? I went out and started to look for a job. And I came back the next year to play for the Toowoomba Clydesdales uh, for the money, really, which wasn't much. It was just a little extra. I had the time in my work week. I was a marketing manager for a big licensed club, uh, Kedron Wavell Services Club, and could fit the, the footy stuff in and around. I think at that stage we had two children, so we'd had our first two or four, and the money was going to come in handy, and I, I loved it. I loved playing rugby league. Uh, sure, it was for the cash in some small way, but without the pressure and expectation of being in the NRL. So whether I sort of played good, bad, indifferent on a Sunday for the Clydesdales, I still had to turn up on Monday in a real job in the real world where no one knew or cared about what I did on the footy field. Did you tear them apart? No, I'd, I'd had some really good games. I'd had some average games. But for me, it was just about enjoying rugby league almost at the level of when I first started out. You're playing for the footy. You know, and I'll say it again, sure, the, the little match payments come in handy occasionally, but for the most part, you kind of almost rediscover your love for the game and the way it used to be. Would you have eventually got the chop from the Broncos anyway because you had lost the pace after the knee surgery or was it all about the passion? I uh, don't know. I, I, I quit mid-first year into a two-year contract. So I got a two-year extension uh, for not a great deal of money in rugby league terms and at that time. 
So had another year to go. The Broncos would have honoured that contract. I certainly, my knee improved and my mobility improved in 2004, just playing the amateur stuff with the, the Clydesdales. So I don't know. I, 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 I could probably say that things might have continued to improve had I stuck around, but I, I have no regrets no regrets about that decision. That's a really interesting point. That was obviously going to be my next question. So you played Origin at 18. You're the youngest person ever to play Origin. You were the last person ever to be picked for their country from the North Sydney Bears. All these wonderful honours. You did play eight years in the NRL, but maybe alongside the pedigree of player that you were, you, you probably were pulled up short in your career to a certain extent. But did you achieve enough so that even though if there might have been another few good years after that, you're pretty satisfied anyway? Or is there some quiet yearning for what might have been? No yearning. It's amazing. I, 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 I know in my heart that I could have achieved more had I approached my life as a professional rugby league player and a young man with an old head. So most of the lessons that I talk about that I learnt from my playing days, I've learnt retrospectively. Because I look back and, you know, I've been on this personal development journey. I've been around great leaders and, you know, I'm well read and I know and understand all the different frameworks attached to leadership these days and what drives great companies and great individuals. And as I learn them, I lay them over what was. But at that time, I only knew what I knew. So that's what I achieved. And I left knowing in my heart that I was ready. So... I won't sit here and say I regret because I, I've got a, a wife, four kids. I've got a fantastic job working for a fantastic organisation. I remain involved in the game. And I think if I hadn't had the experience back then the way I did, would I be where I am today? And maybe I, I wouldn't be. And I would not change where I am today for anything. Not one more first grade game, not one more try, not one more origin jersey, and not another game for the country. Pat Howard talked about ex-players falling into a few different categories. Some of them sit in a bar half drunk talking about when I used to be. Some of them have just moved on and they're happy to talk about it. They're proud of what they achieved, but they've moved on in life. And for some of them, it's just, hey, when I was young, I used to play a bit of footy. It happened to be for Australia. What category do you sit in? Yeah, probably the, the latter. Yeah. It's a, uh, because I love the game, I now look back on my career and I, I've become an expert in the generation that I played in. So I, when I, I celebrate the great players I played with. You know, Darren Lockyer, I started playing against Darren when I was 12 years of age, and we kind of grew up together. It was some sort of sick cosmic joke that I, I was the same age as Darren Lockyer. We played the same position. So I always got bumped from 5'8 <laughs> to the centres. He was okay as a player, wasn't he? Oh, he was just something else. And uh, I got the chance to play two test matches with Andrew Johns. And, you know, for, for all these uh, flawed genius, this was a guy who was a rugby league savant. You know, Brad Fittler. Uh, I played with Shane Webke, Gordon Tallis, Brad Thorne. I mean, look at what Brad, Th- Brad Thorne's mm-hmm. done. Impressive career. And I... I love that. I love that about my life. And I, I love being able to share those stories of some of the great people I've met on the way and, and not just on the field, but off the field, you know, and someone once said to me, life's about stories, go and make some. And they, I, I've got plenty of stories from that period of my life and I, I enjoy telling them and very few of them are about me, you know, and I think what a rich life I, I, I got to live for, as you pointed out, probably eight years, 18 to, to 26 
And I'm now able to share with people and not just any people, but my own family, my best friends. There's no hint of longing in you. It's all just good stuff that you're able to remember and talk about. It's very positive, mate. And as we've talked about, you now work in the media. And I imagine a lot of players want to work in the media when they finish up playing. That's one of the natural pathways. The other is coaching, of course, but there's not enough roles to go around in the media to feed everyone. Why you? Why is it that you, of every player in your generation of players, are the one hosting the nightly NRL 360? I've got no idea. But I, I can tell you how I fell into it. So I'd kind of gone into the marketing world and uh, had a connection first with the, the licensed club industry here in Queensland. Then I moved into big construction, uh, got a sales role and had a wonderful mentor working for a wonderful business for a long time. But the, the media stuff sort of come in from the side. I got asked here after I retired to be part of the local Channel 9 commentary team, which was Chris Bombalus. Steve Walters, just calling Broncos games. And so I, I jumped on board and didn't expect much more than that, to be honest with you. I'd never tried to position myself for a job in the media. Midway through that season, State of Origin rolls around, I think it's 2004, and they're looking to build, uh, Channel 9 looking to build the commentary team for the, the Origin coverage. And they, they did set, they must have run short because I got a job in the first Origin game of 2004 interviewing the coach at halftime, which was Michael Hagan. It was a it was a minute 10 job, I think, from memory. I asked two questions. That was it. And I remember going down with Gordon Tallis, who, uh, for whatever reason, after the first game, found himself sucked away through other commitments by the time the second origin hit. So, of course, I was the tap on the shoulder to get advanced up to the panel. And kind of the more I did, uh, and for whatever reason, it, it, I didn't get overly daunted by it, didn't get hugely nervous, felt fairly comfortable doing it because I, I wasn't a big name. Let's be honest. I, I was second tier at best. If you're, if you're talking, no, I'm serious. If you're, if you're talking about first tier being Darren Lockyer, Brad Fittler, Andrew Johns, I yeah. mean, these are guys that are immortals and have their own statues, yeah. then I'm happy to be second tier. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. and I was. If that's the first tier, then I, then I agree. But yeah, you played yeah. Origin. You played for your country. That's right. So I, I guess I was invited back, which is yeah. really the only feedback you get in the media, to be invited back for right. the second and the third game. And then off the back of that, I, I started to get some uh, what they call network games for Channel 9 out of Sydney. So I was calling non-Broncos games with the, the network commentary team, which sort of rolled into a contract. And I did that for four or five years, I think, with Channel 9 until I sort of left Channel 9 in two, 2009 for personal reasons. And then kind of no hint of regret or anger. I got picked up by Fox, I think, in 2012 on a bit of a freelance gig, which rolled into NRL 360, which we're now into our fourth year doing, and we have so much fun. Good evening and welcome to NRL 360 Rugby League from every angle. Ben Eichen with Paul Kent from the Daily Telegraph. Uh, we only got four games in round 18, but there are eight on the... When I started doing this podcast, which was about almost exactly a year ago, because I edited my own first 10 or 15 episodes... I became very conscious of the way I spoke, my ums and ahs and terrible speaking tics and stammering over words. And of course, when you're thinking about something like that, you notice it everywhere. And I remember noticing you at that period when I was really conscious of it. You are a very clear speaker. You don't stammer or um and ah. As we've been talking, I'm, I've been imagining there won't be much editing from this episode of the podcast. Has that come from training that you've done in the media or were you always pretty good at articulating yourself? Well, I worked in sales. So I, Gift I, to the gab. Yeah, I had to have that. But when it came to the, the media work, I've absolutely put 
a stack of training into it. So I've done acting classes, presenting classes. I run footy shows at home with my kids, all in the name of becoming a better commentator and a better host. Satisfied with where you are or are you still on that trajectory? I am on the path of continual improvement. So I, while I, I acknowledge now that my hosting is better today than it was four years ago when I started on NRL 360 and it's a mile in front of where I first started back in 2004, I, I enjoy challenging myself because when I get bored, I get dangerous and I don't want to be bored. And the, and the best way for me not to get bored is to continue to challenge myself in the work environment. So that's not so much just looking at uh, doing the, the extra work uh, around vocab, articulation, uh, hosting skills, etc. It's watching how other sports shows operate offshore. You know, so I, I'm, I'm online. I've got Foxtel. You know, I'm watching Sports Center. A lot of American sports shows. ESPN. Docos. Yeah, you know, it, it is. It's it's. It's good fun. and But the th- thing about it is if you can continually borrow from people who you believe do the job better than you, then you, correct me if I'm wrong, you're only going to get better. At least you're not going to go backwards. And that's kind of what I've got in the back of my mind because I love my job. I don't want to give anybody who employs me an easy excuse to say, you know what, we've found someone better. Is, is that why you've, you've kept the job, those reasons I gave, the things that I noticed about you when I started paying attention to articulation? Is that why you're still in the job? I'm not sure. It's ne- I've never been given the, the feedback. They don't give on- you feedback like that. Well, it's, it's not so much about we keep you in a job because you do these things well. It's, it's feedback along the lines of show's great, it's rating well, uh, I'm loving your links into the break. It doesn't sort of drill. That, we don't drill down like professional sport does. And that was the big thing I noticed post my career at the Broncos, you know, when rugby league finished up, is that in the corporate sphere, and it operates the same way in the media, is that there's a bit of a feedback vacuum. So a lot of companies do performance reviews well, and if you're doing it well, you probably get it once a quarter, but mainly they do it once a year. And professional sport, at least my time in professional rugby league, experience was one of you play on Sunday, whatever day it was on the weekend, by the time Tuesday rolls around, your coach, who's only interested in making you better by the following Sunday, has watched your game, taken down a whole stack of notes, uh, measured you against a whole heap of metrics, and by Tuesday, you get that on your lap. And in case you don't make sense of the metrics or the written feedback, he'll show you in video form where you are going well or where you need to be better. And then you will be surrounded by a team of people that will help you improve where you need to improve by the time the next Sunday arrives. And that's the thing that's often missed for me in management and leadership in the corporate world is that a leader is no more than the sum total of the efforts of their people. Yet how many managers, senior people, leaders in big companies spend the best part of their week coaching those underneath them? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's why the corporate world draws on sport because the coach knows by the time Sunday rolls around, he can do nothing himself. He has to sit there and for 80 minutes watch the 17 young men who he spent the week with determine his future. Mm, interesting. Yeah, so it's, 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 the whole week is geared towards making your people better as a leader. Yeah. But it's not like that in the media. No, it's not. It's not. not. I mean, it's media is just a lot like corporate, Mm. and you'd know what corporate's like. I mean, you run a business where people bring you in and ask you, 
make us better in this area. You know, help, help us create an environment where people feel engaged, where we're improving them, where they want to improve themselves. And that's what professional sport is so good at. Yeah. yeah I draw a lot on professional sport for that very reason. They do so many things well that the corporate world could, could learn from. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. So how much of your show is scripted? Because you do a very good job of, as you say, throwing to the brakes and linking from segment to segment. Is it all scripted or is it all just you thinking on your feet? No, all scripted. It is all scripted. Yeah, Mike Gibson, who sadly passed away last year, uh, was on his way out at Fox Sports just as I was arriving. and I used to love the back page. Yeah. Well, I still do, but when he was on it, loved it. Oh, and he was a genius, someone I looked up to and someone who my co-host on NRL 360, Paul Kent, was was very close with. And my program, NRL 360, is a news cycle show which covers off on all the big issues in the game. And so you need a bit of a depth to your knowledge and a bit of evidence to support your position. And there was a lot of stuff coming across my desk and I felt like I needed to be the expert. I had to know everything about every topic that we discussed. And I, was, I, I got a bit of performance anxiety because of that. I spotted Gibbo one day on the Fox Sports news floor. I said, mate, do you mind if we catch up for a cup of coffee? I expressed my concerns to him as I've just expressed them to you. And he, he gave me some advice and it stayed with me for the remainder of my time at Fox Sports and will do for the rest of my television career. He said, Ben, know this, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to create the illusion that you are one. And so wherever I get the chance to make it look as though I'm doing a better job than what I actually am, I'll take it. And if that means putting something in auto cue or having cheat notes that you don't see me looking at because the camera's on my co-host, I take that opportunity because at the end of the day, the experience of the person on the other end is that I'm getting all the information I need. And it's polished. That's right. And uh, mine's a very... Mine's a show chock full of, of, of vision and graphics and, you know, uh, I'm reading through newspaper stories. And so while I say that the, the stuff that I put in autocue is absolutely good for me, it helps the back end of my show run smoothly because I've got a, a producer and a director that sit in the control room who have to feed off cues from me. So I work at the front end of my show all day plugging in when I want to see a newspaper graphic, when I want to take some vision of a player, when I'm going to throw to a tape piece as opposed to what they call overlay, which is where you talk over vision. It's a, it's a very technical show that way. So together as a team, and that's the beauty of us on NRL 360, we're really proud that we're a tight unit and everyone's got a role to play. There's a lot of trust required when you're doing live television. But, but when it comes back to, to me and making the choices around what I need in my day, I make no apologies for the fact that I'm probably more, I, I'm more prepared, I'm, I've uh, spent more time using the tools at my disposal to look professional as opposed to just thinking on my feet. I, 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 don't, I never, ever take that option. How much time does go into preparing for each of those shows? Well, I start on a Monday, so having watched all the games and all the coaches' press conferences and then being across every story that sits in the rugby league news cycle, knowing that I have to because I have three, ha three hours of television to fill, which is not easy. You know, it needs to be unique and you need to spin it out in different ways. You just can't be regurgitating. You've got to sort of, you know, recount the topic and then move it on. Add something to yeah, it. Yeah, move it forward, move it mm. sideways, get yeah. people thinking different. 
So kind of you're never out of the news cycle. Uh, so I sort of watched the replay of last night's game already. I've got to watch Friday night football, which trust me, sounds job. sounds like it's easy. But I often say to people that the toughest part of my job is when you get about eight or 10 weeks into the season, having to watch eight games of football every week, it kind of strips the joy out of it. It's yeah, not as much I fun. It does. And the best analogy I can give you is that it's like, it's like eating your favorite meal for dinner every night. Mm, yeah. You know, after a couple of weeks, it just doesn't taste as good. Yeah, I bet. So then by the time I, I get to Sydney on a Tuesday morning, I would have already conferred with uh, the producers on the Monday from Brisbane. We would have sort of plotted a, a fair bit of the show for Tuesday night on the Monday. I then just get in and treat Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday like regular work hours. So I sort of arrive about nine, spend all day working in a program called iNews that helps us put the run sheet together, working with the producers and the co-host. And I get off set 7.30, go to the hotel across the road where I stay, which is only about 100 metres from Fox Sports. And at the moment, I'm catching up on Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah. So you don't watch the show? I, watch, I choose to watch the show probably once a month. How do you go watching yourself back? Fine. You're, like, you're okay with it? You still, was it tough at the beginning? It's really objective, critical assessment now. Yeah. I used to watch it and like everyone, my, my co-host Paul Kent still has the experience. I was talking to Billy Moore who does our show on a Thursday night. He can't, wa- he ca- he can't watch anything of himself right. on TV. Yeah. Paul hates to hear his voice. Does he? And he, sa- he asked me that last night on set when we watched something back. And I said, mate, I'm so far past that. Yeah. For me, it's all about uh, phrasing, uh, the the flow of the show, uh, how dynamic and fast-paced it is, yeah. whether or not we've exhausted a, a topic for too long. Mm. You know, So for me, I've kind of gone from being a good host now. I'm really passionate about the art of making good TV. Production. That's it. I'm surprised to hear that Paul Kent hasn't got past that either because we all go through that. As I said, I'm a, I'm a year into this. I used to cringe whenever I heard this, but now it it is what it is. That's my voice. I'm okay with that. I'm much more interested in in the quality of the content now. Paul Kent's been doing that show for quite a while. I'm surprised to hear he's not past the sound of his own voice. Yeah, we, I don't think he he doesn't wake up thinking about good TV or, or, or being a good co-host. He's, he's all... Uh, knowledge-based, opinion-based, Paul. So he lives his day quite literally on the phone. You know, he's helping create the rugby league news cycle. Yeah. And he's been brilliant for me because he's a, he's a beautiful writer, Paul Kent. You know, we don't, this is the one thing I have learned uh, working in the media, particularly on NRL 360, is that unfortunately for Australian sports journalists, they're just not put up on the same pedestal as they are in the UK or the US. Mm. And Paul has a great attachment to great sports writers across history from right around the world. And you, you place him very highly. Oh, he's a, you know, Matty Johns once described him as the best editorial mind in rugby league. Really? Now, this is a guy who grew up in a caravan park, yeah. who um, uh, was out of Gosford and come from a working class family, I think, might have even been a failed English student and wrote a thousand letters to get his first gig, maybe at a local paper in Gosford and continued to pester the papers out of Sydney until he got a, the old cadetship at uh, the Herald, so for Fairfax. And just kept learning and learning and learning and pushing and learning and honing his craft. And I work with Paul every day and he is still my favorite journalist to read. Is he? Every morning when I wake up with my cup of coffee, I've been part of the article in some instances, you know, because he's, like ba- he's been bouncing off me through the day. I wake up and I still want to read the finished product. It's, a, it's an interesting combination. It's a really nice combination the two of you have. You're the very thoughtful, measured, calm kind of host, 
and he has very bullish opinions about things and he's quite passionate and, and emotional sometimes when he speaks. Is that a, a deliberate odd couple balance? No, it's, it's authentic. You know, that's who we are. Yeah. And it's just by coincidence that it's worked out the that way. was the ridiculous part of what happened there. Uh, how did Paul Gallon escape charge for his tackle on Isaac de Goyce, Paul Kent? Uh, inconsistency with the match review committee. Uh, look, I'll, I've said this before and I'll keep saying it. Until Todd Greenberg decides oh, I think what he, he wants his ankle. to look like, be, yeah, that tackle, that wrenching the collar like that, is banned in the NFL. It's called a horse collar tackle they in call, the NFL. They call it horse collar tackles and they've banned it because what they found was players were suffering knee injuries and ankle injuries. That's exactly what the NFL now, was trying to get out of their game. Yep. And until we start getting some directives from the top about how this game should be policed and how we should measure and standardise all our punishments... We are going to continue having these sorts because of things. Because what, what you're basically saying, by letting yeah, that escape about you in the newspaper, unless you talk to me. Yeah. And, and I know there are issues. I, I've got players who I can't cop, and I've got yeah. a lot of players who can't cop me. Mm. Yeah, believe that or not, Ben. I don't believe that. I don't believe it. Can I just say, two of the best things I saw on TV last year. around the world. Uh, boxing has become a farce in that manner. Uh, there's no true one world champion in any sport. No, no champion holds every belt. Well, then, yeah, we're on a different plane here because there's no way you can say that that is a contribution to Australian boxing. That but is isn't, an isn't trash talk? To isn't trash boxing. talk just part and parcel of boxing? You know that, and it's That's been not, like that no, in the it's states. Not, it's not part and parcel. There are lines you go to in boxing, and there are lines you don't cross. And He's a bit combative, Paul, and he knows that, and he enjoys that. He doesn't mind leading with his chin, but he's happy to be convinced, you know, of the alternative opinion. Is he? If you bring strong argument. Yeah. And he loves that. And, and the more you challenge him and the more you get him to think differently, the more he respects you. You know, I think there's a lot of guys in my life that are like that, that don't really enjoy the company of yes men as much as they do of those that are going to, you challenge know. Challenge them. That's right. That's right, and Paul, Paul's absolutely that way. Now, do you still get nervous when the, when the cameras flick on? No. Not, not an ounce of you is nervous? No, and sometimes that, that's an issue for me because we can be literally getting the 10-second countdown and we'll still be finishing telling each other the story that we started a minute before. Yeah, right. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's what we call the red light moment. You've just got to be professional enough to know that the moment the red light comes on, you are enthusiastic. And sometimes the enthusiasm has to be manufactured because everybody has a, a less than enthusiastic day at work and we have those as well. But it's become, I think it's become a, a learned trait for us to, to know that uh, people, uh, our employers primarily, but fans as well, expect us to be engaging and, and to be engaging, we need to be engaged in the content and the discussion that we're having. And to do that, you've got to be enthusiastic about it, right? I love these new generations of shows that you're involved in. I lived in the US for a few years and I became this fresh new fan of the NFL and the NBA. And what I loved about living in the US was that you could have your favorite thing every night of the week. It was everywhere all of the time. Yeah. And that was back in the early 2000s when that wasn't the case here. We, we had a few footy shows once or twice a week. You could watch most of the games, but it wasn't an all- all around. It wasn't a 360 experience, which is what's happened now. And I really love that. You know, no matter what your sport is in Australia, you get that, that full on experience with it now, like the US had many generations ago, probably. And, and the other thing I really enjoy is that because of uh, media globalization and access to everything through the internet and pay TV is that anywhere in the world that's doing it better, 
there's a fair chance that the people watching your show have watched what's better, beat around the NFL or the NBA, so their expectations rise. So you can never be complacent. And I spoke to you before about, you know, if I get bored, it's almost dangerous. Working in this job, being on show three nights a week every week makes it hard to get complacent. But even if you did around your show thinking that, uh, no, no, that format works, that format works, you, you, it, it's like by the following week, you've tuned onto something on Fox Hill, you've watched something online that is so much better than what you're doing, you go back and you reset. And that's that's the... That's the hard thing for television locally here, where now people across all kinds of genres of television have been exposed to genius. You know, you look at uh, the cinema at the moment, so the, the big movies. The big movies are being challenged by television again. Oh, that's right. Getcha. So, you, Absolutely. you know, where they used to be out there on their own and, mm. you know, television was always cheaper and second rate. Yeah, now, most, most of the dramas these days, the sharp stuff that everybody's talking about, I mean, it's become the new, what we're talking about at the start of the 2000s. It's about how many shares have you gotten? Uh, what's the best place to buy property? You know, you just go through a fat. At the moment, I don't think I go through a day where someone doesn't start a conversation about Game of Thrones and then finish saying, have you watched Peaky Blinders? Yeah, or House of Cards. That's right. They are movie quality. You're right. They are. And the same is happening in sports TV. And that's what I'm very conscious of. And that's the part I enjoy is that there's so many examples around the world now of how you can do it better. And, and that might be true. Let's say there's an NFL show out there that is more produced than yours. Might, might, probably true. Probably a pour a whole lot more money. But the advantage you have is for the rugby league fans, you're talking about rugby league. So I can see NFL shows that are fancy and got lots of stuff going on. But at least when I watch your show, you're talking about a game that I love. And so that, you always and, have that. And that's part of our style too, is that ours, our show needs to be remain conversational. You know, it's, it's, it's not slick. It's not a series of sound bites. It's not filled with too much vision and graphics and that's that's not what the 360 model is about this was something that was created by Jared Waitley on AFL 360 back way back when they started I think in 2012 or 2011 and has remained a successful format because what we try to portray in for, for rugby league fans is that we're having this conversation myself and Paul it's well informed people feel like they're in the know but it's also comes across as a conversation that they would like to be part of. Yeah. They're, they're eavesdropping in on two guys talking footy as though they're in a cafe. And that's the direction we give to our guests. So we have to sit down that anyone new that comes on uh, NRL 360 and say, listen, when you get out there, don't have to look at a camera. You're talking to us. If there's something that we say you disagree with, cut in. Because this is a conversation. And I think that's what's been in part of uh, I think successful for this franchise, not just in our code, but also in the AFL, is that people take a position. You know, they might agree with me or they might agree with Paul. They might not agree with either of us, but by having the conversation and sort of picking apart the topic and putting it back together, at some point you'll take a position yourself. Come on, fat. Sterling Kelly out to Ella. Wrap around move. Sterling gets the ball back. He makes oh, a love little Sterling. Oh, look at him go. Look into the corner. Look, here comes Gordon. Okay, I'm going to do a riff of a, of a well known song, and we've got to try and. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, that's shit. Oh, we, we spoke earlier about. Paul Vorton, and uh, he's obviously had enormous success for a long time on the footy show. He's a real character of Australian TV. 
Sometimes I have to remind myself that he's the same Paul Vorton that I grew up watching playing lock for the team that I love, that he was a hard man of origin and, and was a serious footballer, a serious contributor to one of our great eras. Is there a sense that when you become part of the media, that it diminishes what you achieved as a player? You've done well, if that's the case. Because if people start thinking of you as the host, and I have people that only know me as the TV host because I, my career ended in 2003, for the most part, and it wasn't Darren Lockyer or Andrew Johns like. So I don't get continued to, to be talked about as the best in this position or part of that great team. It was, I love my time and achieved some things that I'm really proud of. But uh, there, there are some people who come to me and will say, did you play? Which is a, I, I take as a compliment. You're and, a TV guy. Yeah, and when I, when I look at Paul Vorton, I think I, I love Fatty, so I'm completely biased because I know the intelligent, articulate, well-thought-out human being that he is with a great passion for the game. But when uh, people start to think about Fat as only the footy show host – and having done it for, what now, 22, 23 years, I think it is. Something like that. Then you know you've made it. Mm. You know you have made it. And he has. He's, that, that show would not have lasted as long on air as it has without Paul Vorton as the host. He's got a, he's got a, a natural charm and wit. I mean, I, I don't know any other person in any industry that would have had as much success um, turning up to work as unprepared as Fatty does. <laughs> He's, he's made an art form out of it, and, he, it's, and it's part of his genius. Just turns up, does he? It's part of his genius. Right. You know, and there's a real subtle way about not just his, his work on the footy show, but I've fallen back in love ha having Fatty Vorton in the commentary box this year because mm. we've gone through a period where we've had a lot of smart people talking at us from the commentary box for a long time about their thoughts on tactics and how teams should be playing. And all of a sudden, we've been reminded this year with Fatty in the box that those guys who fill that role are called colour callers. And sometimes it's just about adding a bit of colour. And Steve Roach has done the same thing for Fox in the last couple of weeks. They've come back into these colour call roles, so co-commentators, and they've immediately tapped back in, not to the tactics of the game, but to the emotion of the game. And they take you on this sort of emotional journey across the 80 minutes, which I really enjoy because for someone that lives in the news cycle that gets a lot of tactics... When I watch my footy, I like to feel. I like to feel good about good tries, about big hits. I like to feel the emotion of a team that's gotten behind on the scoreboard. And I, f I find that Fatty was the genius at that. And that's why Fatty and, and Sturlow were such a great pair in the commentary box. My favourite appearances of Fatty recently have been at the end of The Origin, where he and Wally sit at one end and Gus and Joey sit at the other end. And there's a very forlorn, long-faced look at one end and a, and a sort of a held-back grin at the other. I'm, I'm enjoying that at the moment. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Queenslander, but once the Origin series is over every year and we've, we're recording this before Origin 3, it's 2-0 to Queensland, 10 out of 11. Once the, the maroon hair dyed has faded away and we just look at what we've seen over the last 10 years objectively, what have we learnt about team dynamics, team spirit and leadership? What lessons can we extract from the success of Queensland and from the lack of success down south? Well, I've told the, the Corey Parker story mm. about the philosophy that underpins Queensland's success, at least in the last decade, you know, belief, absolute belief that you can get the job done, but to that 110% philosophy of don't just do your job well, but help your mate do his well. But 
for me more than anything, I, I, I love this quote by Tom Landry, the ex-coach of the Dallas Cowboys, that I think uh, embodies a lot of those great Queenslanders that we've seen over the last decade, that reads, the quality of a man's life is in direct pr proportion to his commitment to excellence. And we've had a core group of individuals, you know, that started with Steve Price, Petro Sivanasiva and, and Darren Lockyer and a young Cameron Smith and Billy Slater, but has since been passed to a senior Cameron Smith, Jonathan Thurston, Cooper Cronk and Billy Sh Slater, that are as good as we are going to see in their respective positions across the, the history of the game and for a long, long time to come. And, you know, that whole excellence piece for me is about wanting to be the best. And uh, I've been out of the game now for a long, long time. I, I say my lessons from rugby league are more retrospective than they were learned at the time. But since I've been in corporate and media, my personal leadership philosophy is best people, best practice. Best people, best practice. If you want to win, if you want to develop a high-performance environment, you go out and find the best people at what they do. And then you get them to commit to a culture of best practice. And I'm not saying you're going to get it right all the time. You're not always going to have the best people, but you've got to be in, a, in an environment where you give people the opportunity to be their best. And once they are, daily, you commit to best practice and don't compromise. That's, that's what paying the price is all about. And that's what the Queenslanders have done. So we can extract all the lessons we like, and there's a lot of lessons to learn. But without those great best practice thoughts being played out practically, without at the same time having the best players in their position for generations, we wouldn't have had the last 10 years of success. No. The two had to come hand in hand. They did. I mean, you, you look at that Queensland side lined up against the New South Wales side this year. You tell me. Who would you swap? Exactly. Mm. And that's, that's, I mean, that's, you, you, you're not going to be able to afford, and the Melbourne Storm's a classic example. The best players in every position, one through 17, in that financially constrained environment that's driven by the salary cap. But you can get three or four of the best who are a daily example of what being the best requires, surround themselves with people who ha perhaps haven't got the natural ability, but have got the intent to be the best they can be. And that's what the Melbourne Storm That's are. their model, isn't it? It is. Mm. You know, so you go to the Melbourne Storm and you're a tier two or a tier three player you are moving up a level or two because Craig Bellamy and those three champions, and you could probably throw in Jesse Bromwich now, so Bromwich, Smith, Cronk and Slater, they get you redlining. You go to the Melbourne Storm and you have no other choice but to be the best you can be on a daily and weekly basis. Yeah, it's, a very, it's very impressive the way Craig Bellamy does that around that spine of quality players. He brings everyone up a notch or two or three. Well, the, not just Craig, it's the environment. Mm. It's the organisation, mm. which, which is that sort of, that kind of cool group of best people. Ben Eichen, you've been enormously generous with your time. I'm going to end our conversation with three really quick questions. Out of everything you've achieved in your life professionally, what's the one single thing you're most proud of? Retiring. What do you mean? Well, the, the easy thing for me would have been to continue to do something that I wasn't enjoying all that much, which was playing professional rugby league, and to sort of find the courage to sort of let that go because a lot of guys struggle with that and move on to the next chapter 
particularly when I had a wife and two young kids to support uh, at that stage, and I think there were two that quickly followed after, uh, was probably something that I look back now, and while it, probably at the time it seemed not all that difficult, but I'm, I'm glad I was able to make that decision because as I've already said in the podcast, I've arrived at a point in my life that you know I'm enjoying thoroughly. I've got some, all the people in my life are fantastic, particularly my family. And I just wonder whether or not if I had a, hadn't have made those decisions or lived that life in the past, whether I, I would have arrived at that point. And you know, a, a big decision in, in and amongst all of that was to step away from professional rugby league and move on to the next phase. Great answer. What's the one thing that you know that you wish everyone else knew? I reckon that it's always better to operate out of a, a feeling of love than it is to operate from a feeling of fear. Wow. That's good. I yeah. like that. I, I think if you, if you come at things uh, only wanting the best for people and uh, from a place of compassion you attract more of that into your life. But the, you know, dr being driven by a, a fear of lack of anything, I think it just leads to a life of misery. Good answer. Very last question. Thinking about personal or professional growth, what's the one thing you're working on right now? I've already answered it. It's learning everything I can about the making of good TV. So I host a show called NRL 360 which is a television program. And for me to stay in this job that I love and continue to do it well, then I need to continue to learn what makes great television. So I'll talk to anyone, everyone, watch anything, read everything that I can to make sure that I remain on that path. Fantastic answers. Ben Iken, you have been so generous with your time. I've loved every second of our chat today. Thank Thanks, you. David. And that was Ben Iken. I really enjoyed the chance to sit down and chat in such depth to someone who's had so many great experiences, who's willing to share them, and he has such profound observations to make about the game of rugby league, leadership, family, the media, and life in general. If you like the show, share it with your friends. It's always nice to have new listeners on board. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that I always share the lessons I took from my guests, on the Lessons Learned page. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. We're on all the usual social media hangouts. Share, comment, like, and subscribe. It all helps to spread the word about the podcast. Thanks for joining me for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. My name's David Frizzell. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.